A resource consent application for a large solar farm planned for the Mackenzie Basin has been rejected on ecological grounds. Andrew and Karen Simpson of Belmoral Station near Lake Tekapo want to build and operate an 88 megawatt solar farm on 113 hectares, which would produce enough electricity to power up to 13,000 homes. An Environment Canterbury hearing was held in Christchurch in August and the three commissioners' decision has just been made public, refusing the consent. They say the development risked permanent and irreversible loss of threatened land environments and would potentially impact indigenous flora and fauna species. The decision's been welcomed by the Environmental Defence Society, which opposed the application because it threatened indigenous biodiversity. But what does this mean for the country's pathway towards decarbonising the energy sector? I spoke with the EDS Chief Executive Gary Taylor a short time ago, but first Roger Sutton, Chief Executive of Mid-Canterbury Lines Company EA Networks, which submitted in favour of the proposal. It was an 88 megawatt solar farm, um, initially feeding into the local Alpine Energy Network, but as it got bigger, um, it was then going to feed into the, the transmission system. And what was the interest of your company in it? Um, I mean, I, I run a, an electricity distribution network that is a co-op. Um, with these sorts of um, hearings, people turn up saying they don't want it. Very few people turn up saying they want it. And I represent customers, and I thought this was going to lower energy prices. But it was also going to actually lower our emissions. And unless we start building more renewable energy, we're, going to, we're not going to actually meet any of our emission targets. What addition would it have made to local networks? So on what kind of scale, Roger? Um, 88 megawatts is, is as much energy as is being used in, say, in the, in the mid-Canterbury region right now. Um, it makes a significant improvement um, in the overall emissions. Oh, look, the other thing, Catherine, that's important here is it's going to produce more energy, we think, in a dry hydro year. And because this is where it is, it's in a place when it's sunny, it's not raining the hydro lakes, and when it's raining there, it isn't producing that solar energy. So unless we produce renewable energy in dry years, then we're also going to find it very hard to keep to um, meet our emission targets. Roger, can you describe the scale of it? It's on private farmland. Um, but look, in the simplest terms, what would people have seen? We're, I'm sure we're going to hear about potential in, um, uh, environmental impacts. But you know, what did these smaller scale solar farms look like and how are they set up? So this is about, we're taking about, about 100 hectares of land. So it's about half or a third of the size of the average sort of um, New Zealand dairy farm. Um, this was actually sited so you couldn't actually see it easily. So it was behind trees. Um, if you stood on the top of um, Mount John, you weren't going to be able to see it. So it was actually designed in a way so its environmental impact was was low from that sort of visual point of view. Okay. Uh, it's fallen at this particular hurdle, uh, and I'm just interested in how you come at this issue of one environmental issue versus another. Um, do you concede that in this case, you just mentioned the Mount John Observatory, right, and, and, and the Mackenzie, for many reasons, is regarded as a pretty special area. But do you concede that there may have been important biodiversity or other environmental considerations in this case that at least needed to be considered? Absolutely, Catherine. I mean, we turned up because we want more renewable energy, but if I'd been one of the commissioners, I wouldn't necessarily have signed it off either. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a, an ecologist. I, I, I'm not the right person to make those trade-offs. But I do know unless we do start consenting more renewable energy, 
we're going to find it very hard to meet our, our, our emissions targets. But also, this is actually a way of us helping to lower electricity prices as well, unless we build more of this renewable energy. Stay with us. I want to come back to you. Uh, Gary Taylor, uh, can I bring you in? Why did the Environmental Defence Society, which has an interest obviously in climate um, as an environmental problem, why did you oppose this application for a solar array? Well, it's in the context of having spent uh, the thick end of 10 years uh, trying to protect the ecological values in the Mackenzie country, mostly from dairy conversions. Um, and we looked at this and thought, um, you know, is this um, uh, development, which, and, and I concede we need a lot of these, we need probably 500 megawatts a year over the next several decades of renewable energy, is it in the right place? And we looked at the ecological values, we took expert evidence, and we saw that it was not. It was going to have significant adverse environmental effects, mostly on ecology, not necessarily on landscape values, as Roger said. Um, And funnily enough, when we went down to look at the site, um, there's there's a paddock roughly the same size, literally over the back fence, where those values don't exist and where this development could uh, most likely get consented. What, what, what are the specific values? What's the specific habitat? It's, it's, um, it's native plants. It's tussock and other grassland plants that, that are rare, uh, that are um, uh, some of them unique to the, um, to the intermontane basin that makes up the Mackenzie country. Uh, and they're, um, as the Commission has found, they are diminishing in in spatial extent and density because of uh, developments that are still occurring in the basin, and so the the relative rarity of them became an important um, consideration in this case. Is this an alternative to dairy, or at least a supplement to dairy for some of these operations that you've had other issues with? Well, uh, certainly converting dairy farms to solar farms would be a good thing on balance. Uh, because you'd reduce uh, runoff um, from from dairying, which is you know the the main sort of pollutant um, land use activity in the country. Um, but I mean, I, I think I think what's I mean, Rogers kind of touched on the the complexities of, of the challenge that we've got here. It's it's putting these developments in the right place where we can get good environmental outcomes and good climate change outcomes. And that means we need to start thinking about constraints mapping, about spatial planning, about looking at what should go where and what shouldn't, instead of just dealing with them all on an ad hoc basis, which is really what's happened here. Well, I want to ask both of you what a sensible way forward is, because goodness knows how much money the farmer applicants have spent on getting this far. And if we seriously want to have smaller, local, uh, distributed supply, uh, then we cannot make it prohibitive or too complex for smaller operators rather than big companies. So can each of you, Gary, go first. What is a sensible way to incentivise these developments but not have people say this is too hard? Well, I think, um, I I mean, can I just say, I think the... The landowners here are, are well-motivated people who are trying to do the right thing. Let's get that on the record first. Um, to answer your question, I think um, we, we need to, we need to um, 
as with all uh, infrastructure and, and meeting our country's substantial infrastructure deficit, we need to get into some uh, spatial planning. And that's where the Spatial Planning Act, which is currently in place, uh, could, could assist us to look long-term at where the highly valued places are, map them, uh, you know, with constraints mapping and say, OK, these are areas where uh, developers, we think you should not go. And then here are the areas that are lower value in terms of ecology and, and landscape that still have, you know, good solar radioactive um, qualities where you can go and then create a more permissive regime for them that, as you say, incentivises them into those places. But Gary, these aren't necessarily bigger developers. We're talking about small individual farms here. We're talking about some of the smaller communities who are trying to set up their own power supply. And if they look at a map and there's a big grey area, are we not missing opportunities potentially, in- including, as Roger said, proximity of these new developments to where the power's going to be used? Well, do you want to, um, do you want to sacrifice the environment willy-nilly for, um, for these kinds of developments? And I'd say, no, we don't as a country. We can, we can be smart enough and clever enough to work out where these things can go, develop a, a planning regime that incentivises them to go in the right place. It's like the pine tree argument, if you like, you know, the right tree in the right place. Well, this is the right solar farm, the right wind farm in the right place. And, and I also think, too, that the question of scale is actually important here. We could uh, generate an awful lot of the renewables that we want if we went with large-scale offshore wind. It sounds a more complex project than a small solar array on a small farm in mid-Canterbury, but thank you. Roger, what's the sensible way forward as you can see it, bearing in mind that the RMA reform that's just been, uh, some of it anyway, has just been passed, uh, is now potentially um, uh, expected to be up for repeal uh, if a new government is formed. Uh, And again, what do you see as a sensible way forward that's not prohibitive for smaller players, but doesn't just say all bets off for other environmental priorities? I think it'd be. I think for a lot of renewable developers, if they knew that they could go to an area and the resource consenting issues would be much easier, so the sort of stuff Gary was talking about. I think we need to think about how we start building some infrastructure into those areas. I think we need to start thinking really carefully about um, what are the areas in New Zealand which are going to produce renewable energy when we aren't producing it anywhere else at that time. Because unless we've actually got a diverse um, array of renewable energy. So we are going to have it sunny in some areas and windy in other areas. Unless we've actually got that diversity, we aren't going to keep those lights on in a dry year or in a year where it's cloudy or windless. Um, I, I, the other thing I just say, I think a lot of people think a rooftop solar on our roofs are going to solve these issues. I think the numbers we did the other day was, I think if 40% of New Zealand houses had rooftop solar, it would still only meet about 4% of our electricity needs in 2030. So we need a whole range of new resources as well. Well, I want to ask you about that modelling, because the, the, the talk now is about distributed, smaller supply, whether it's rooftop solar, uh, whether it's solar arrays on farms or on, on bigger areas. Um, realistically, what percentage of our... Energy, of our um, electricity supply, which remember is estimated to need to double in the coming decades, is ever going to come from some of these smaller um, investments? 
So, I mean, the, the rooftop stuff is never really going to meet many of our needs. It all makes us feel good and it looks nice, and et cetera, et cetera. So we are going to need some big-scale development. So I think we probably are going to need some offshore wind. And the thing about offshore wind is some of the modelling we're seeing at the moment is that offshore wind produces more energy in winter than it does in summer. And that's one of the real cruxes of us decarbonising our economy. We need more energy in winter when the hydro inflows are low, when the sun ain't shining, so we need to make sure some of those resources can come ashore as well. Roger Sutton, Chief Executive of Mid-Canterbury Lines Company, EA Networks there. It's submitted in favour of this uh, promote proposal, in favour of the applicants. And also speaking there to Environmental Defence Society, Chief Executive Gary Taylor.